wish, uh, I wish you adults in the front row would be quiet. It's really... <laughs> we love kids. They're awesome. They are. They're great. Um, they do the things we wish we could still do. I know some of you, for example, would love to play Candy Crush during my sermon. <clears throat> it better be a Bible app that's on your phone, not Candy Crush. Um, my name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at the Garden. Uh, we've been going through uh, different highlighted stories in the Bible, trying to trace the drama of redemption and explaining how God's covenant interacts with each one of these stories in an intimate, direct way. And today we're going to talk about a, a story actually that I've preached here twice before already about David and Bathsheba. We're going to look at a really unique, different twist on it. So today's title for this message is called Helplessly Blessed. A look at how God's covenant of grace is ready to face any challenge. A look at how God's covenant of grace is ready to face any challenge. So let's look at the story. Uh, we already heard a little bit about it from the children's message, and I've preached on it a couple of times here, but just to make sure that we understand, set up the story for you. Nathan looks at Bathsheba, another man's wife, falls in lust with her, falls in love with his sin, and he commits adultery and gets her pregnant, and he's trying to hide that by having his, her husband killed. He says to the, to the fighters in the battle, to the generals, Go to the hottest part of the battle, bring Uriah up to the very front, and when the battle is raging the most, everybody drop back and leave him there to die himself. So he murders Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and then he takes Bathsheba to be his own wife. And then Nathan comes and gives this story about how there's this rich man who went and took the poor man's only lamb that was kind of a pet, a member of the family, and he killed it to feed an out-of-town guest. And David is raging with anger. He's very angry, and he says, whoever this guy is, he sucks. He should be put to death. He's terrible. And Nathan says, you're the man. And thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I chose you to be king. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you to your master's house. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives in your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have given you even more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You guys remember in our long series about David, you guys remember we talked about how bad he really was? I mean, this was just one aspect of his story. Remember the time he was living with the evil King Achish and every day he would go into a neighboring village and kill all the men and kill all the women and children? and take away all their clothes and all their money and all their cattle. As a matter of fact, the evil King Achish would go to David and say, what town have you raided today? And I made the example, it would be like us every day getting together as a group with our guns and our lives and going and ransacking Venice and then Inglewood. Next day we go to Bradenton. Now they deserve it in Bradenton, but still, <laughs> you get the point. Every day he's going to these places. Then we saw how he handled when one of his sons raped his sister. I mean, the guy was not a good guy. David had a ton of sin. But what is interesting is the covenant that God made with David had nothing to do 
with how holy David was or was not, how bad he was or how bad he would be. As a matter of fact, we can look at this passage in Psalm 89, verse 34 to 7, 30, uh, 37. My covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. And so in Psalm 89, we see a clear understanding of what God says. No matter what happens, even if David deserves the worst possible judgment, here's what God says. I will not lie. I will keep my everlasting covenant with David. And remember what the covenant was. The covenant was that David and his seed would reign, his seed being Jesus, and that all nations would be blessed. The same covenant that he made with who? Abraham. And so what was the purpose of this covenant with David? Was it really just to set up a throne? There's another aspect of this I want you to read in Romans 11. If you have a Bible app, you can turn to it there. You can look up on the screen or whatever. And I'm just going to read it to you. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. That's part of the covenant, taking away sin. As regards for the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We talked about this passage last week. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And we talked about this passage last week, and we've talked about it last couple weeks in a row, actually. And the concept that I want to make sure that you understand is that God is not surprised by sin. God is not rerouted by sin. God does not have plan B because of our sin A. Do you understand that? And what we see here in this passage is that for David particularly, and for us, disobedience was consigned to them by God. And we discussed this a few weeks ago. Why? Because the law says and declares depravity. Remember, we spoke about that. The law declares what sin is. The law points out what sin is. The law declares it, and it judges it. And I said a few weeks ago that the law leaves us helpless so that we won't be hopeless. We're going to look into that some more today. But we see the purpose was so that through David's seed, Jesus, God would save all of his elect, both Jews and Gentiles. That's what this whole point is. Paul is explaining how all of us are one family and all of us have had disobedience. First, Jews were disobedient so that Gentiles could have grace. And once the Gentiles had grace, the Jews began to have grace and mercy through the work of the Gentiles. And the concept is this. He has consigned all to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. The point of the covenant of God with David was not that David was so great and deserved it. It was God saying, I'm going to choose, no matter what David does, to bless all nations through him, through his seed. I will not lie. That is going to happen.
Do you want some proof that God kept his unconditional covenant with David? This passage in Luke is fantastic, right? Here's what it is. I'm just going to read it to you. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel came and set, sent, sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Do you feel the power right there of what I'm saying? It's earth-shattering. <laughs> and a virgin betrothed to the man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So you clearly see the purpose of the covenant that God made with David in spite of his sin was not so that David could be king. It was so that God could set up Jesus as king and master and Savior. So a couple questions for you. Did David ever come close to nullifying God's covenant because of his sinfulness? Was there ever a time where God said, I made this covenant, but he's so bad, I got to change my mind. Was there ever a time? Never close. Never even close. Next question. Did David's sin work against the covenant? In other words, did David's sinfulness make the covenant work harder? Did David's sinfulness cause the covenant? Oh, here goes David again. Here, I got to come and do my covenant work again. I mean, imagine the covenant as a person, which it really is. It's Jesus. Here's David. I got to do more work. Did David's sin work against the covenant? Think about that. Or is it possible? I'm going to stretch some of your minds today. I know sometimes we sit in church We've had a long weekend. We've watched our, our football team win a game late last night, and we go through, and we're tired. But I really want you to focus on this concept. Is it possible that the covenant worked with David's sinfulness? Was the covenant and David's sin always fighting? Or was there some miraculous, joyous, incredible way that the covenant worked with David's sinfulness? Here's another question for you. Did God know David was a scoundrel before he made this unconditional, irrevocable covenant? Was God surprised by the murder of Uriah? Was he surprised by the adultery of Bathsheba? Was he surprised when he kept attacking Venice and Bradenton every day? Was he surprised by those things? Of course not. So this is to make sure that you understand this covenant that God made with David had a great purpose. The covenant that God made with David was never in doubt, even at David's lowest point. And the covenant that God made with David was actually specifically designed to work with the fact 
that David was a terrible guy. Yeah. A terrible guy. Let's look at this passage here. Because I want to talk about an application for us. I mean, if God's covenant worked with David's sin, I'm pretty sure it can work with anybody's. Let's look at Romans 8, 26-30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You notice the first part? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't even know how to pray, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches hearts knows what the, he, he who searches hearts knows what the mind or the spirit is because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. And we're going to talk about that little weird, strange word there for just a moment. But first look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. There's a process there. <clears throat> Let's look at the word called for a minute. This is very important. Eight out of ten versions translate that passage, all things work together for good to them who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But in reality, eight out of those ten versions are 100% wrong. There are two words that can be translated in that way, called. One is kletois, and one is kletusin. Those are the two words. They come from a root word called kaleo, which means I call. Now, kaleo is a verb, I call. There's things called gerunds, and there are things called participles. And I know this is an English lesson, but try to stay with me. A participle is when you take a verb form, and you add an ending to it, and it makes it an adjective. And it describes a noun. Right? And then you can take a verb form and put an ending to it, and that verb becomes a noun. I like running. I am fat. Don't laugh. That was just an example. <laughs> you people. <clears throat> so, there are two words that are translated that way. Here's what I'm going to show you. In Greek, the word endings are very crucial. As a matter of fact, the word endings tell us what a word means. It tells us who it applies to. It tells us how many number of people it applies to. It tells us when in time it is applied to that. It's amazingly precise how the Greek language is almost like math, if you will. While the Hebrew language is very creative, it's very poetic, and there's a lot of nuance in how it can be translated, it's, it's really kind of an artistic language. The Greek language is very precise. So there's two words. Kaleitusin is a participle. That would mean those who are called. For all things work together for those who love God to those who are called. That would be the word if it were translated correctly. Kletusin. That's a participle. That usin at the end means 
people who are called. These people are called. It'd be like, you know, you people, some of you are late every Sunday. <laughs> some of you are early. That would be a descriptor. But that's not the word in this passage. In any Greek manuscript, the word is this, kletois. And that ending at the end, T-O-I-S, or, or tau, omicron, the I, epsilon, sigma, right? Those, or iota, sigma, sorry. These meanings mean plural noun. So the word kletois is a noun to those who are the called. This is 100% correct translation of that passage. Now, why is this important? Joe, why are you boring us? This is why it's important. This word helps us clearly identify very important things about this passage that Paul talks about. First, who do things work together for? That's important. He says all things work together for those who love God, those who are the called. Who is it that all things work together for? The called. This is a noun. It's a plural noun. Those who are not called, but those who are the called have all things work together for good. And those who are the called are also predestined. Those who are called are also justified, he says. And those who are called are also glorified. For those, if he, for those he foreknew, he also predestined. Back to that foreknew part. Remember I asked you, do you think God knew that David was a scoundrel? Yes, he was. And yes, God knew. But David was still one of the called. So, it, ex it explains who the things work together for. It explains what are those things that work together. We understand that all those things are affecting a noun. It's affecting the called. So this is important. And the last thing it helps us understand is how those things are working together. How are they working together? And we know that all things work together for good to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he understood who they were, he wasn't surprised by them, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we know who things work together for, we know what the things are that work together for, and we know how they work together. They end with glorification. Kind of like how you would treat a king. So can you see how this New Testament passage truth was at play in David's life? Can you see how this covenant of grace works? The whole covenant of God is designed specifically for people who are sinful. You hear this? The whole covenant is designed for people who are sinful, who have been consigned to disobedience. We said that in our passage before. He says, for all have been consigned to disobedience. Why? So that he might show mercy on them all. So the whole concept of the covenant of grace is this. For grace to benefit you, you have to suck. For grace to help you, you got to be depraved. Do you still want proof of what I'm saying? You want some more proof? I've got the nail on the coffin. 
And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners and gator fans? I'm oh, sorry, that was, didn't mean to put that in. Sorry. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, because I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. This is Jesus, by the way, the promise of the seed of David, who would bless all nations, saying this, I don't care about the righteous. The covenant of grace is not for the righteous. They're irrelevant to me. I don't come to help the righteous. I come to help who? The depraved, the sick. The righteous, so to speak, they're on their own. And by the way, we talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus laid out a pretty clear, high standard. If you even look at a woman to lust, you've committed adultery. If you even say you hate your brother, you've committed murder. The standard for righteousness is pretty high. So, this, guys, this is the exciting part. You ready? Stick with me. This, this is what's going to transform your mind, I think, and the way you think about your grace relationship with Dad. This is what we call, in Reformed theology, unconditional election. God having mercy upon his people, regardless of who they are, where they've been, what they've done, or who they are, who they will become, where they go, and what they will be. Just like David's covenant with God was unconditional, and God chose David in spite of the fact that he was a murderer and an adulterer and a town killer and all these other things about David, God chose him anyway. This is unconditional election. Because you see, a true understanding of how God designed the covenant of grace will do a couple of things. First of all, it brings you to a place where your recognition of your depravity, understand this now, I'm going to blow your mind here. When you recognize your depravity, it's not a sad day. Watch, it's the start of joy. Because it forces you, it drives you, it banishes you to the shelter and harbor of grace. This is why God consigned us all, including David, to disobedience through the law so that joy could come through grace, through Christ. See, when God calls your name, and we're getting ready to see a song about this in just a few minutes. But when God calls your name, there is nothing that his covenant with you will be surprised by. Now look, Joe, I called you, but I had no idea that when you were 26 you were going to do that. And no, I'm not telling you what it was. Look, Joe, I, I know I called you, but I had no idea you'd be such a bad youth pastor, you'd be fired from four churches. That's ridiculous. Look, Joe, I called you, but I had no idea that you would really struggle as a husband sometimes. Yeah, Joe, I called you, and I gave you this unconditional covenant, but I had no idea how much you would fail your kids. 
See, when God calls you, there is nothing that his covenant with you will be surprised by. Because the covenant is unconditional. You know why? Because that covenant, just like the one he made with David, is tailor-made to thrive. Guys, get this. To thrive in the midst of depravity. Do you hear what I just said? The covenant that God made with David, which is the same covenant he made with you, is perfectly designed to thrive in the midst of your depravity. And this week, when you are reminded of your sinfulness this week, maybe even feeling guilty about it, and I know some of you do, remember the other side of the covenant, which is grace, that was designed to thrive, to collaborate, to mix in, to be a part of, and if you will, almost to a certain degree, work together with. Why do I say that? For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. This covenant with David, this covenant with you, was so amazing that it was a design that depravity it's almost like plant food. And it causes the roots of grace to grow deeper and deeper and deeper as it interacts with your sin. And some of you are saying, well, I got a pretty good root system under your mouth. <laughs> That's what's so scandalous, so unfair, so ridiculous about the covenant of grace.